Yeah, just press play. Nah, they'll, they'll never know. Just nilly vanilla that shit. It'll be fine. Come on down to Narangong, where narrow-minded folk belong. Bring the kids, it's a bloody good place to be. There's a bakery and a primary school, a decent pub and a public pool. There's a roundabout and a bloody good petting zoo to boot. So come on down and grab a beer. You can stay if you're from here. And if you're not, you best be moving along. G'day, cunts. Uh, so we had to use a recording of Earl today, as you might have noticed. He's back down in Adelaide for another hearing in his ongoing legal drama. We're hoping he can get it all taken care of, so he can get the leg monitor off and be back to his usual self. But uh, in the meanwhile, we've had to make do with alternate arrangements. Sorry about that. So far, the Oral History Project has touched on the town's literary scene. We heard from Poet Laureate Cliff Shanky, and had a special sit-down interview with him. We also heard about Australian Charles Darwin's successful screenwriting career. We've delved into the town's history, of course, looking back to World War I and the brave diggers from Narrow that marched off to war. And we've been through some important cultural moments. The Christmas pageant, local footy. We haven't heard too much yet about the uh, culinary scene here in Narangong. I can assure you, it's exactly as good as you'd expect. So we're going to start off today with a short recounting of one of the more exciting moments in Narangong's history. You've heard me say a few times now that Narangong, in addition to being South Australia's tiniest town, 1993, 2003 and 2008, also won the prestigious title of Australia's best Cornish pasty in 1997. And I bet you've been asking yourself, how'd that happen? Well, I'll bloody tell you. Without further ado... Here's Australia's Best Cornish Pasty, 1997. The Cornish Pasty carries a corner of the proud and varied banner of Australian cuisine. Australian culture is marked as much by immigration as by innovation, and Australian cuisine is no exception. The flower of Australian cooking blossomed in this fair country, but its roots spread deep across the globe. Consider the lamington. A quintessentially Australian dessert named for the English Earl of Lamington, who compensated for his reputation as a dandy by cutting a wide and brutal path across South Asia during the Bombay Coconut Wars. Or Farmers Unionised Coffee, South Australia's most popular chilled beverage, which owes its existence to a theory of labour ownership, capital distribution and social organisation developed in Austria. So too the popular Cornish pasty. Now a popular choice at school canines across Australia, the Cornish pasty was invented to satisfy the large hunger of the small men who came over during the mining boom of the late 19th century. These men, whose dominant hand constantly was preoccupied by acts of mining, drinking or pugilism, needed a warm meal capable of both sustaining them and being wielded in their other. Although the legions of diminutive Cornish miners who once swarmed across the land have since faded into the mists of history, they shaped the land and its culture during their time here. Other than historic villages filled with rows of homes with doorways of forehead-cracking dimensions, their most enduring contribution has been the Cornish pasty. The Cornish pasty can be found in heated cases in every bakery in Australia. It can be seen in the hands of schoolchildren, beachgoers, brickies on lunch, and suited barristers sneaking a smoko and quick bite before returning to the bench. 
In fact, the Cornish pasty has ascended to the highest realm of Australian ubiquity, a competition. As surely as Australia's abundance of sheep have led to shearing races, or its proximity to the coast has led to speedo-clad bronze bodies competing to see who can save a drowning man the fastest, so too do local bakeries now attempt to best each other in the fine art of wrapping dough around potatoes, carrots, peas and assorted spices. Each year, the winning bakery earns the right to declare itself the creator of Australia's best Cornish pasty. After decades of annual competitions, hundreds of bakeries across Australia now proudly advertise their preeminence through meticulous hand lettering on doors, windows and A-frame signs. It should come as no surprise then that visitors and locals alike are welcomed into Ruth's Bakery in the centre of Narangong by bold letters proclaiming Australia's Best Cornish Pasty, 1997. 1997 was, frankly speaking, a pretty shit year for Narangong. The Fighting Roos were in their fourth straight losing season, a drought had left most of the region browner and drier than a bing-bong birthday, and Ruth's entry to the cake decorating competition at the Murray Bridge Royal Show had come third behind some fancy big shot baker out of Wakery, who had decorated a Jaffa-flavoured cake to look like an orange, and Daryl fucking Gergen from Gambo, who entered a chocolate cake that looked like a shoe. A fucking shoe! Not a nice dress shoe either, he'd done it up to look like a bloody sneaker. It had been a rough bloody year and no mistake. In a hard land, a people's spirit sustained them as much as food, air and cold beer. And the spirits of the people in Narangong were low. Narangong needed to kick a goal. The chance came when Ruth received in the mail notice that her bakery was under consideration for the finals of Australia's best Cornish pasty. The judges had been travelling the country and now were making their way to southeastern South Australia, their last stop in a nationwide tour of excellence in baking. Ruth took this as good and bad news. She was terribly excited to be considered, and she knew that the people of Narangong would benefit from such a great honour. At the same time, she also knew that Daryl fucking Gergen down in Gambo had two unfair advantages. He was pretty bloody good at baking, and Ruth's pasties were frankly shit. The morning of the judging, Ruth was a nervous wreck. The judges would be coming through at 4pm, then heading on to Gambo for the final tasting. But Ruth was up at 4am working on the dough and mixing the spices. At 5am, the bakery was filled with the aroma of the first batch of pasties coming out of the oven, when old man Shanky stopped in unexpectedly. Morning, Ruth. Morning, Rog, she said morosely. There's not much for it, I reckon. I'm going to let the whole town down. Old man Shanky sucked thoughtfully through his teeth. Now calm down, Ruth. Let's have a taste of this pasty and see what sort of shape we're in. Ruth slid a Cornish pasty off the cooling rack and onto the counter. The dough was a pale white colour, turning to a singed black at the edges, and sunk in a crater in the middle. The filling oozed out when she sliced it. Old man Shanky took the offered piece and inspected it. He held it in his fingers and sniffed at it then put the morsel in his mouth and chewed. Ruth looked up at him with only the faintest glimmer of hope on her otherwise despondent face. Well, she asked. Old man Shanky looked around for a tasting bucket and not seeing one, reluctantly swallowed. It's pretty shit. The glimmer of hope flickered and died. Nah, you're not going to win against Daryl fucking Gergen down in Gambay with this. I hear he makes his own pastry fresh and uses locally grown peas and carrots rather than frozen. Seems like bloody cheating to me. Ruth nodded sadly. There seemed no hope. Old man Shanky, seeing the look on her face and the peas crusted in her flyaway hair, 
decided it was time for action. Look, Ruth, you keep working at it. Maybe add a little more pepper. Uh, I'll be back in a bit. Shanky was out the door in a flash, leaving Ruth alone with a tray of baked failure and ten and a half hours until the judges arrived. By 10am, she'd produced an array of pasties so filled with pepper that the smell of them bacon made her sneeze, and by noon she'd run out of frozen carrots. At two, when she heard old man Shanky's ute pull up out back, she was curled in the corner, sucking the jam out of a Kitchener bun. The smell hit her first. A rich, smooth smell of warm butter, delicate spices and roasted vegetables. Old man Shanky backed through the rear door of the bakery, carrying a large tray of plump, golden, flaky pasties. The seam of each one was perfectly crimped. They almost glowed in the lights of the bakery and let out puffs of aromatic steam as old man Shanky sliced into them. Ruth was in awe. Rog, she began. Nah, love, no worries. I reckon these will do the trick. Ruth leaned forward and flared her nostrils as she savoured the aroma. They smell like... She sniffed again. They... They smell a bit like petrol, to be honest, Rog. I reckon that's just the smell of success he replied, and hurried to the sink to scrub his hands. You just, uh, go ahead and set these to warm The judges will be here soon enough. Ruth got the call two hours after the judges visited. They'd loved their pasties, of course, but were withholding judgement until they had a chance to visit the final baker on the national tour, Daryl fucking Gergen down in Gambo. Turned out that Daryl fucking Gergen down in Gambo had to forfeit on account of not having any pasties. He'd been up early baking his pasties for the customers and was about to set to work baking a fresh batch for the judges when a stranger had stopped through. He was on his way to the hospital, he said, and the kids he was visiting had liked nothing more than a fresh, warm pasty from Gergen's bakery. Daryl fucking Gergen felt bad leaving his loyal customers high and dry without their pasties that day, but for the kids, he said, and sold the lot at half off. As he watched the mysterious stranger hop in the passenger seat of a ute out front, he sniffed. He thought he caught the odour of petrol, and something burning. Ruth had the sign painted on her window almost immediately, she was so proud, and it turned out to be just the kick in the ass the town needed to restore a little civic pride. She hosted a big to-do that weekend, and half the bloody town showed up to celebrate her success. Ever since, there's been a stream of locals and tourists alike walking in past the sign on her window, Australia's Best Cornish Pasty, 1997. Despite the sign, the locals mostly go for the pies or sausage rolls. To be honest, the pasties are pretty shit. What a ripping yarn. Uh, we got a bit of time left still, uh, so I'll, I'll sneak a quick treat in for you. I've got uh, three short histories of some other significant cultural moments in Narangong history. They come to us courtesy of old man Shanky himself and give a real perspective on the town's long and rich history. Narangong's a bustling metropolis now, with all the bells and whistles, but it, you know, it wasn't always. Let's go back to a time when Nara first got TV. This is The Future is Nara, Part 1, The Arrival of Television. Although it's hard to believe in this age of cable, television and DVR, there are still those in Narangong who can remember when the town first got television. It was a simpler time before then, a time of wireless radio shows and weekend cricket matches, picnics and garden parties, and late nights reading the latest serial instalment per candlelight. For those that could read, of course. Those that couldn't probably just drank a few extra beers and fell asleep, or threw rocks at the houses of those that could. 
bloody readers with their books. Anyway, Old Man Shanky was the first to get a television set. Even back then, he was the most powerful man in town, and the only one with sufficient money and influence to get a brand new set all the way out to Narangong. Even so, it took a couple of months to get something like that delivered. The day the telly came, the whole family were gathered in anticipation in the living room, all dolled up in their best clothes while Mum stood by the door watching the road. Here he comes, she shouted. Everyone shut your trap and behave yourselves. This is an important moment. It took a while for the installer to get the telly set up. Homes back then didn't have all the accoutrement we used to, with the wall mounts and the surround sound. These tellies weren't the fancy flat screens either, but they got it set up in a good spot in the living room. Everyone was gathered around, hoping to see this miracle of modern science as it first flickered to life. Old man Shanky, however, had stepped out to use the loo, and no one dared touch the set in his absence. So they sat in their press suits and start shirts and waited. And waited. And waited some more. Eventually, Mum stood up. I reckon he's in the loo, she said, and headed off in a huff to find him. They were back in a few minutes. Now, old man Shanky began, standing solemnly by the new set. <clears throat> this is a historic occasion for us. We may not be a large town, but we're a bold and exciting one and we stay at the cutting edge of modern technology. Today just goes to prove it. As blessed as we are, though, we should always remember those who are less fortunate than ourselves. Get a bloody move on, Rog Jr. muttered from the sofa. Those less fortunate than ourselves, those without access to indoor plumbing and all these miraculous new televisions... Put a cork in it! I reckon Neighbours is about to come on. Bloody good stuff there. Let's go even further back, though. Back to when the first real modern convenience arrived in Narangong. This is the future of Nara, part two. Flush dunnies. The dunny plays an important role in Australian culture. It's the centre point of rural myths. There could be no redback under the toilet seat if the dunny were indoors. No drop bear yarns to wind up unsuspecting foreigners if they weren't forced to make nighttime journeys out of doors and under trees to the distant loo. And it's the punchline of many of the best jokes. But like the horse and buggy gave way to the motor car, or like the Pacific Solution replaced outright racial hostility, so too has indoor plumbing come to replace the romance of the outdoor dunny with the clean efficiency of an indoor flush toilet. It should come as no surprise then that old man Shanky was again the first in town to have one installed. Not so much for his own use, he was always partial to a period of quiet contemplation spent with the daddy long legs and the funny pages, with the wind whistling around his thighs. But Mum had insisted that this new technology was the only thing, and that she wouldn't be seen walking to the dunny anymore if she could help it at all. The Shankies were an example to this town, she explained, and the people needed someone to look up to. They couldn't bloody well look up to them if they could see their ankles under the dunny door, could they? Old man Shanky wasn't sure that he followed this logic, but he knew better than to argue, and arranged to have someone come by as soon as possible to start converting the bedroom closet into a more functional space. The construction took a while, what with all the pipes that needed fitting and replacing the clothes racks with hand towels, but after a week or so, they had the town's first WC. Old man Shanky insisted that he be the first to use it. I'm not even sure that it's safe, Mum, he cautioned clutching the funny pages. And I reckon that cup of tea just hit me. Anyway, so look out. Fifteen minutes later, Mum was back knocking on the door. Rog! She yelled. Are you done in there? 
Only the man's finished putting the telly in. I don't want to use the loo before Neighbours comes on. Eh, yeah, too bloody right. Finally, let's jump to the last modern convenience. The internet. This is the future is narrow, part three. The World Wide Internet. These days, seems like everyone's got a computer. You can send someone an email and they'll get it in seconds. You can buy pretty much anything you want, and if you're not careful, you can see a lot of things you'd rather not. Or at least a lot of things that you'd rather people didn't know you'd seen. But it didn't used to be that way. People used to write each other letters and go shopping in town and make do with the lingerie section from the Johnny's catalogue. But the internet's all the rage now and they've got it in pretty much every home in Narangong. Back in the day though, there was only one man powerful and wealthy enough to afford the new tubes. Yep, old man Shanky at bigpond.com.au was reticent at first, but Rog Jr. assured him it would help with hayrake sales and young Cliff was, in his own words, keen to communicate with cosmopolitan cultured poets from the dusky reaches of far off lands. Old man Shanky was ready to put in the internet, just in the hope that he wouldn't have to hear about the dusty Neapolitan poets anymore. The installation didn't take all that long, what with there already being a phone in the house. So before long, old man Shanky was sitting down at the computer and getting ready to surf. He cracked his fingers and reached for the mouse. Push over, Rog, said Mum, nudging him off the chair. I want to see if that TV's going to get delivered in time to watch Neighbours. What a ripping set of yarns. We hope you enjoyed this week's instalment of the Oral History Project. We hope you'll join us next week for uh, Different Horses for Different Fakes. It's a thrilling tale about the fast-paced, high-stakes world of horse equipment sales. Until then, take it easy.